We're coming to the end of the Judean chapter of, of Paul's life. And soon he's going to reach that point that had been promised and that God, by his strong hand and providence, has been guiding him towards. And that Paul has been preparing and praying for since his conversion. And that's to take the gospel all the way to Rome. In Rome, during that imprisonment season there, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing. And one of the letters that he pens is to the group of believers, that body of Christ in Philippi, that group that had supported him so well, prayed for him constantly during all of his trials and difficulties. And Paul is writing to them, uh, recounting, recounting God's faithfulness. When we think of Philippians, if I were to ask any of you who are, are familiar with the book at all, if I, if I were to ask you what's one predominant thematic element of Philippians, you would probably say joy. But I want you to consider the context of it. It's in the context of suffering and struggle and difficulty. And Paul is writing almost a, a memoir of God's goodness in his life through that, through that trial and struggle. So as you think about these hearings, these defenses that he's given in the book of Acts, consider the, the behind the scenes of them as he writes to the Philippians. In Philippians 1 verse 12, he says, what has happened to me? has really served to advance the gospel. You think about living your life with that sort of perspective. God is sovereign, and his seen and unseen hand is always at work, and he's guiding, and he's maneuvering, and whatever he does for me, and whatever he does to me, and whatever he works through me, is for good and for his glory. And think of Paul's willingness to subject himself to the work of God, when he can't trace the hand of God at work, trusting the heart of God, and says, it's worth it. It's worth it that God would leverage my life for the gospel. All these things that have happened to me, and that includes the beatings and the imprisonments, and soon we'll see in Acts the shipwreck and the snake bites and all these things to advance the gospel. I will rejoice, though, for I know that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. When you think about that level of commitment, whatever happens, whatever God chooses to do, because God is good and his ways are perfect, I have entrusted my life in his hands. If, if God wants to use my life and keep me breathing and keep me speaking, keep me declaring, then he'll be honored. But if God should choose to allow me or cause me to be martyred for his sake, that I would die standing here saying, this Jesus that you crucified as Savior and Lord, then he'll still be honored. But with full courage, I'm going to approach life or death for the glory of God. And that's the kind of Christian commitment I want. That's the kind of Christian commitment I want to implore and exhort each of you to. Whatever God chooses to do, that with courage you would face it. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That might be my favorite statement of all the ones that God gave Paul to make. For me to live is Christ. As long as I draw breath, it'll be for the glory of Christ. It'll be to honor him and to please him. And I will be faithful to him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. If I'm going to be alive, I'm going to keep being about Jesus 
But if he chooses to take me, then that's gain for me. I hope you have that absolute same assurance. If that sounds foreign to you this morning, if you're sitting here listening, that sounds preposterous to me, that death could be gain to me, then hang in here, okay? I want you to hear what I'm going to say. I want you to listen carefully to these words because this is the hope of every true believer. I want to be alive. I do. I want to see many more Thanksgivings. I want to enjoy many Christmases. I want to have many more birthdays. But I know this. If God should choose other than my plans or my desires, to die is gain for me. And I hope that you know that as a believer too. That doesn't mean that we have this bizarre preoccupation with death. It doesn't mean that we desire to go prematurely. It's just that we're confident and certain that one day we're going to see him who loves us, who gave himself for us, who was raised for our sake. We're going to have the joy he promised. And it'll be in his presence. We'll have the peace that only he allows. We're going to know what it means to truly Beloved, to die is gain, and I hope you have that confidence. Pray with me. Father, speak, I pray, through your word and through your spirit, working in concert together, pointing us to you, revealing your glory in the face of Jesus. Father, I pray that the words would just pop off the page for us today, and it would feel like just for a moment, in a room full of people, that you're speaking just to, to me, to to each of us specifically and, and personally in a way that's just inescapable, unavoidable. We can't get out from under that sense. Lord, encourage the believers and strengthen them today. If there's anyone that's listening who doesn't have the assurance of death is gain, who doesn't have the knowledge that leads to everlasting life, who's, who's never submitted themselves to King Jesus and says, save me, make me your own. I pray that today they would. So Lord, be glorified in our hearing and our doing and our worship. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now let me set the scene just ever so briefly to catch everyone up because this has been a long series of events. This speech that you're about to hear in Acts chapter 26 is really the highlight, the pinnacle of everything that Paul spoke and shared in, in the book of Acts. It's the climax of all of them. And it really sets the stage for us on what Paul understood about Jesus. Who is he? And what has he done? And what does it mean to be part of his family? And so this is really a high point in the book. And, and so many things have been leading up to this moment. And here's what's happening to get us to this point of this speech. We have a new Roman governor or procurator. His name is Festus. He's replaced the ineffective Felix. And when he arrives on the scene, the first thing he does, remember he's the, he's the governor of the Judean province, which is controlled by the Romans, but also has local leadership. And when he arrives on the scene, the first thing he does, he goes to Jerusalem, the seat of government and, and religious life, cultural life of the Jews, because he wants to establish a good relationship with them right off the bat. Now, there are so many different issues swirling in the ancient world at that time that are political and cultural and, and military. And you would think there'd be a whole just gamut of things that that the Jews are going to want to talk to this new Roman governor about. But at the top of their list is Paul. This has been festering for them for so long now. For, for two years, they've been waiting to get their hands on him. Remember, there was that group of 40-plus young men who had pledged never to eat or drink until he's dead. I wonder how that's going. And they want to get to him so badly. They have, they have bloodlust for Paul. For Paul, he is the, the focal point of all their frustrations about their religion and their culture and the loss of their identity and all of these things. They want his head. So when Festus calls Paul to meet before him, in short order, he finds out he has nothing to charge him with. 
In fact, Paul rather defiantly says, I've committed no wrongs. I have, there are no wrongdoing here at all. And you know this full well. Nothing against the religion, nothing against the people, nothing against the temple, nothing against the law. Nothing. You've got nothing to charge me with. Send me to Rome. Instead of sending me back to Jerusalem and putting me in their hands to do whatever they will with me, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar, send me to Rome. And thus his hands are rather tied at this moment. This is the right of a Roman citizen. But his quandary is this. I'm the new governor here. I've been appointed to clean up the mess that was left my, by my predecessor. And now I have this character who's fomented so much conflict. And he wants to go appear before Caesar. What am I going to tell them he's appearing for? What charge is there against him? I mean, to send a person like this to appear before someone like that with no charges is at least career-threatening, if, if not worse. And so Festus calls in a local, regional ruler, Agrippa, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he appeals to him, for Festus rightly understands that the issue here is not really political, it's religious. Because he believes something that has turned the Jewish culture upside down. He believes this character, this rabbi, who I know little about, but I've heard some things of, he believes this rabbi who taught and drew to himself a group of believers, followers, was crucified, is actually alive. And that really tweaks the Jews. This issue is really religious. So he calls in Agrippa, and he wants Agrippa to hear it. And Agrippa's eager to hear it. Agrippa's, Agrippa's eager to hear the story, and he arranges a day to see him, the very next day, he'll appear before King Agrippa. Now for Paul... What he's about to share is less of a, a defense on trial and more of a proclamation. He's been preparing for this moment. He's ready for this. He's looking for this opportunity now to clearly proclaim the gospel to the widest and most influential audience to date. Roman governor, a Jewish king, all the military leaders, all the powers that be in his time. He's ready to step up and give, give the gospel. You see, for Paul, the stage has now been set. For him to fulfill exactly what Jesus said would happen of him. Jesus said for all of those who follow him and his disciples or his disciples would one day face situations like this. Luke 21 verses 12 through 13. Before all this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. That you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness Jesus said. And of Paul particularly in Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to him, Go, for this Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So here he stands now fulfilling those prophecies. And so for us, for you and me, as we look at this text, we can see God's hand at work all of this time. It's interesting and Chapter 25 and 26, we see little to no mention of God in this, and yet we see God so clearly. He at work in all of this, orchestrating this end, this event. In his book, The Apostle, John Pollock describes the beginning of proceedings like this. Festus opens the event. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man here about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. 
As he himself has appealed to the emperor, I decide to send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa. And after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charge against him. And that brings us to chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. This is Paul. Uh, A device he's using to speak. He's giving a, a speech at this moment. He holds out his hands, just a statement of, of authority and to grab the attention of the people. You can tell he's prepared for this moment. And listen to what he says. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, in this speech, he's going to be addressing Agrippa personally. But he's not just speaking to one man. He's speaking to what that one man represents. And this is something so beautiful and amazing, I think, to all of us. Paul has not written off the Jews. In spite of their multiple rejections and refusals of the gospel, in in spite of their absolute animosity towards Paul and the gospel, I mean, think of all that they've done to him to silence him. They want him dead. And yet he has not relented in his love for them, his desire to hear. So he's addressing this, even though this audience is mixed, Jew and Gentile, Roman authorities and Hebrew rulers, military personnel, influential Jews, the religious community. He's addressing Agrippa as a type. The Jews want you to hear this gospel, this message of salvation. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. And he begins, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief of priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the light, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. And witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you 
from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our peoples and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul's fifth and final defense before Rome. And he begins and ends it with the most critical element of the gospel, the singular non-negotiable, the event upon which everything else hangs, both for Paul and every believer since, including me and you today, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. He starts and ends with the resurrection of Jesus. Now for Festus, as Paul describes this, both that which was prophesied that which was witnessed, that which he says to Agrippa, you know about this, this didn't happen in a corner. This is not a small event. This is a very public event. You are fully aware of this. For Festus, this is irrational. This makes no sense. And it is, by definition, irrational. It doesn't fit with, fit with conventional wisdom. It doesn't fit with the scientific method. No, this is supernatural to the highest degree dead and now alive it's irrational but for paul this is real the resurrection for paul was real this was not idea this is not philosophy this is not just a religious concept this is not a feeling or emotion paul didn't stake his life on that paul staked his life on the risen lord when he met jesus on that road he knew jesus was alive when Jesus appeared to him, it was, it was real. It's not vision. It's not figment of his imagination. It's the person of Christ. It's the historical reality that Jesus died and in the flesh was raised and then appeared. 
And Jesus said to Paul, who was persecuting every believer, who was persecuting the church wherever he could, starting with those who had received Christ and trusted him in Jerusalem, to as far off as he could go in foreign cities. Jesus says to Paul, who was persecuting his church, why are you persecuting me? And that identity of Jesus with his people, you can't separate them. They are mine, they belong to me. We are his body and he is the head and we are united to him. For Paul, it was real, and he says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. And he says this in verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why did he say that? Why did he challenge Agrippa? Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Because the prophets teach of the resurrection of the dead. Only one small sect of Jewish religious elites denied it. And they denied much of the Old Testament. And those were the Sadducees. They said there was no life after death. There was no spiritual reality beyond what could be seen. They denied the angels and demons, and they denied much of Scripture, but for the majority, and particularly for the ruling class of religious leaders, the Pharisees. No, we, we, we expect life after death. This is part of what the, Moses and the prophets have told us. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was promised to them. The hope of resurrection is not just a New Testament hope. Everyone was basing their life on this, that this would be true. The clearest passage of resurrection from the dead in the Old Testament is found in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today, so if you find some margin space, write these references down so you can revisit them. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a foundational statement by the prophet Daniel. Some will be raised to everlasting life. Some will be raised to everlasting judgment. And both Paul and Jesus affirm that very passage in their teaching. And Daniel's not the only prophet. Isaiah also speaks of life after death. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah uses two different metaphors here. The dead are those that dwell in the dust, asleep, and resurrection is going to wake them up. And then he shifts, and the earth gives birth, it gives life. The tomb becomes a womb for those who have everlasting life. And out of the tomb, they're born to a renewed life. That's not just the truth that they believed. It was the songs that they sang. It was the worship they engaged in. Psalm 49, verse 10 promises us that both wise and foolish will perish. Good and evil will die. But 49.15 of the psalm says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. From the power of Sheol, the grave, and death, he will ransom my soul. This idea of ransoming a soul from Sheol, this is the exact same concept we have in the New Testament of resurrection. It's bringing someone who's dead, physically dead, back to physical life. How do we know? We'll consider Psalm 1610. This is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm penned by David, but it's about Jesus. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. When Peter is speaking in Acts chapter 2, giving that great message that launched the church out, thousands converted by it, here's what Peter said. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to the gospel, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. What was the hope? Resurrection. And according to Psalm 71, resurrection is a comfort for all who believe. Thinking of all the past calamities and the ways that God has delivered his people. He declares in Psalm 71, 20, You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. God is promising that he revives us by raising us. That's an Old Testament hope. And so Paul appeals to that. Is this not what we have been taught for all these years that resurrection has promised to us? But more than being promised to us, resurrection is witnessed by us. We saw this. This is one of the marks of an apostle, that they saw the resurrected Lord. This is why Paul identifies himself as an apostle, along with those others. He was not one of the originals, but he, like them, saw the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. Most of whom are still alive at the time of that writing. You can verify it. Check with them. They saw him. Although some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The timing of my birth was not the same as theirs. I was out of that sequence, but yet he appeared to me. He appeared to me on that road to Damascus. I've seen the risen Lord. He was promised. He was witnessed to by us. And Paul understood what the resurrection accomplished for us. Why does everything center on this? Consider some of the things that Paul wrote about the resurrection. Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been united with him, in a death like his, we shall, certain, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we, would, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. He understood that the power of the resurrection was the defeat of sin and death, the power of sin over us, the punishment that sin brought to us. And it was the ability given to us supernaturally to be new creations in Christ. Paul would write to Timothy these words, 2 Timothy verses, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. This is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
Paul is telling through these letters why the resurrection is so essential and why the resurrection is the great therefore of his life. Everything hinges on this. So he begins and ends with the resurrection because all of his life is explained by resurrection. What Jesus did for him, what Jesus did to him. Because Jesus was crucified and raised, we can have new life. And Paul's life is a testimony of genuine new life, resurrected. He was on a path of death. He was already dead in his trespasses and sins. And he was enacting death, carrying out the sentence of death to so many others. Until he faced a resurrection and bowing before King Jesus, he becomes a new creation in Christ with a new life and a new purpose. Resurrection is why Paul believes. He says, I pass on that which is of first importance. This is why I believe. He says, this is, I've been appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. This is why I speak. And then he says to Timothy, but I know, I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what he's entrusted to me. I know there's a fruit of resurrection that's going to be mine, and this is why I persevere. I mean, it all centers around the resurrection of Jesus. Why I believe, why I speak, why I persevere, because of Jesus who is crucified, raised, ruling, and is coming again for me. Paul's life makes no sense without it. You take the resurrection out, there's no explanation for his life. Why he did what he did, what he did, and how long he did it, it makes no sense. And I would say to us, if you're truly a Christian, your life should make no sense apart from the resurrection. And I'm not saying that your transformation story is going to match Paul's with that level of drama and that level of reversal. But if your life doesn't look dramatically different than it did before Christ, have you met the risen Christ, the ruling Christ? Paul, I'm Lord. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to, to go against me. They keep resisting me, to keep opposing me. I think for a Christian, our lives ought to make sense based on resurrection. Why do we believe what we believe? Because Jesus was raised. If Jesus is not raised, the Bible says we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. Our faith is futile. It's in vain. We're hopeless. It's why we believe. Why do we say what we say? Because Jesus, the risen Lord, is coming again. Jesus, the living Lord, is the one before whom all will appear. Why do we persevere? Because of Christ. I read this personal testimony of faith by Pastor Sam Storms regarding the resurrection. Listen to what he said. I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. The decision I made decades ago to put my trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the laws of physics, nothing has meaning for me. Nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. That's the centrality of the resurrection. So you can see why Paul would stake his life on that. This is everything. This is the game changer. This is the life rearranger. This is the purpose giver. This is what makes life life and eternity certain. 
was Paul shares all of this and appeals directly to Agrippa, saying, do you believe the things that the prophets told us about the coming Messiah? Do you believe them? Agrippa offers a rebuttal, and he says to Paul, and I paraphrase, do you think this quickly you can make a convert out of me too? It's almost as if Agrippa is saying, I see what you're doing here. You think you're going to change my mind that fast? You think you're going to make me a Jesus follower? You think you're going to make me a disciple just like that, just by sharing that with me? In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And listen to Paul's response. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Here's the big question. Are we trying to make... Is our aim as Christians, is is this the goal of disciples of Jesus? Is this the purpose of the church? Are we trying to make everybody Christian? It's not just a rhetorical question. It's actually a vital question to how we understand who we are, what we're about, what the church is for. I mean, is this the aim? Is the aim of Jesus' followers, true disciples of Christ, who've been transformed by him and by his spirit, so now we belong to him, is our aim to make everybody a Christian? And the answer is emphatically yes. That's what Paul is saying. You sincere, religious, devout Jews who have rejected Jesus, what's my aim? That you would know Jesus, that you would trust him and follow him. You sincere and, and you devout practitioners of so much pagan and cultic worship, worshipers of Diana in Ephesus or, or Ra in Egypt or wherever you may be and whatever you may worship, ever how sincerely, what's my aim? That you would know God and his son, Jesus, that he sent for you. Everybody, everywhere, this is the aim. Listen to what he said. Listen to his statement. It's, it's so powerful, the gospel and its purpose, all summarized in one pithy statement. He says, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant witness to the things which you've seen in me and things which will appear to you. And this is why he sent Paul forward. Listen to what he said. He said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, verse 18, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what God wants to do for every single person everywhere on the planet. Every devout and sincere Muslim. Every devout and sincere Hindu. Every devout and sincere Jew. Every atheist. Every pagan. Every unbeliever. This is his aim. And it's absolute. He wants... And we should want people to see the truth of the gospel. He says, I've sent you to open their eyes. How are eyes opened? They're opened supernaturally by the work of God in accordance with the proclamation of the truth. Eyes are opened when God's people share the truth, when they speak the truth. And God's Holy Spirit works. And God, by His Spirit, carries that truth purposefully. We want people to see the truth of the gospel. How will they see the truth of the gospel if we don't say it? If we don't speak it? 
Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He lives so that we might live for him. He's coming again so we can be with him and enjoy him. He wants us to be faithful to him forever and enjoy him. We want people to see the truth. We want people to turn to God and find life. It doesn't matter what your sincere beliefs are apart from Christ or how emphatic your denials are of Christ. By the message that Christ gave Paul, every single person who doesn't know Jesus is under the power of Satan. They're living in darkness. And he wants to rescue them, to turn from that and turn to him and find real life because you're in, you're in death. You're captive in sin and death. We want people to receive forgiveness. We want people to receive forgiveness. To know that when you stand before God one day, you're going to have to give an account. And nothing is hidden from him. How will you proclaim innocence before a God who knows you completely? What will you say in that moment? You've never done wrong. You've never done evil. There's nothing but perfect righteousness in you. What will you say when you're totally revealed before God? No, we want you to receive forgiveness. So when you stand before God on that day, it will be a day of joy and not terror. And We want people to find their ultimate place with God. A place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God is saving us for himself and to himself. This runs parallel to what we saw in the Exodus of God delivering the people of Israel to a, to a place and to the person of him. That they become his people. And he's their God. And I'll deliver you to this land that I promised for you. This is what God has for us. So when we talk about the gospel, we're wanting God to open up eyes. So people will turn from the old life to the new. So forgiveness can be theirs. Eternal life can be enjoyed by them. And Paul lays out clearly, how does anyone get this? If you're listening to this, how do I get that? How do I, how do I turn to God? How do I receive forgiveness from God? How do I have assurance of my place forever with God? It's just too simple but absolutely necessary in deep terms. Belief. Belief. I have to believe with my heart. I have to be willing to stake my life on this to be so. I have to believe with confidence and certainty. I have to place my assurance on this, that this is so. This Jesus is raised from the dead. This Jesus who died for my sins is raised and coming again. I have to believe this and repent. And Paul made it clear what sort of repentance he was preaching to the, to the Jews. Repentance that shows up. Repentance that has evidence. Repentance that's somewhat verifiable by us. Have you turned from the old life and turned to the new? There's no salvation apart from belief and repentance. Belief absent repentance doesn't bring salvation. The devils believe and tremble, the Bible says, to know that there is a God. Sometimes we, we have conversations with people, right? And we try to initiate gospel conversation. And we allow ourselves to be shut down by the simplest of retorts. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, good. Whew. I'm so glad. All that says to you is that the person you're talking to is not a fool. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And don't turn your back on the fool either. Yeah, I, I was praying this weekend thinking about this, you know, how difficult it can be 
to get the gospel of certain people. I mean, some people are just so antagonistic or so resistant towards it. And it can be so frustrating if we're not careful, we'll consciously or at least subconsciously basically give up. And the gospel is more than just for our sons and daughters, as we sung about today, as we sang about a little while ago. It certainly, certainly begins there. You know, we need to be passing this on to our sons and daughters, not expecting anyone else to. M- make sure that your own kids understand what the gospel is. Don't, don't wait on us to share it with them, though we will. Don't wait on someone else to tell them, though prayerfully, hopefully someone will. Make sure you're telling them this so that they, too, have this response, so that their eyes are open, so that they turn from Satan to God, from death to life, so that they, too, receive forgiveness of sins, so that they, too, have a place with God. Make sure you're telling them that, but it's not just for those softer, easier targets in our own homes. The gospel's for really hard targets. It's for the Agrippas of the world. It's for the Festuses of the world. It's for the religious council of the world that wants to put Paul to death. It's for the angry and the antagonistic So how will we do that? And I can only think of two things. We have to be bold enough to tell the truth. And we have to be confident enough in God that God is doing things we can't see, and so we pray. We pray and we speak. We pray and we speak and we pray and we speak and we trust God. And we trust that God can break through all sorts and all types, granting belief and repentance. If you're not a Christian yet, and you're listening to what I'm saying today, and you've heard Paul's appeal, though I didn't give much explanation to kind of let Acts 26 speak for itself, I would say this, if you're not yet a Christian, be very careful that your response is not like Festus's. Festus just scoffed. You're out of your mind. Don't don't scoff at this. Don't scoff at this. This is is what God has promised. And this this is our only hope. I mean, If your hope is in this life, let me coin someone. You're of all people most miserable. If our only hope is in this life, that's misery, the Bible says. It's not not getting better. We're not going to redeem everything. You're going to finish and die, and then what? All your hope is here, now? This is it? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the life that he's promised. Don't, don't scoff like Festus. Resurrection is everything here. To know that when we die, if we're in Christ, we'll be raised to life with him forever. That's everything. Don't scoff at that. Like Agrippa, don't sidestep this. You, you think you can save me so fast? Don't, don't put this off. Don't sidestep it. You know, I'll think about that kind of stuff when I'm older. I mean, I hope you will. I hope you'll think about it when you're older if you're not willing to think about it today, but I don't know that you'll have that opportunity. I don't know what your end will look like. I don't know if it'll be slow and peaceful and contemplative and you'll be sitting out there on your easy chair thinking about God for months on end or it'll be fast and sudden and your family will be left with nothing but despair. I hope something happened we don't know about. Don't sidestep this. This is the critical issue. Do what Paul did. Surrender to it. Surrender to it. He's pushing headstrong forward to conquering the church. I'm going to put this thing to end by death if necessary. If everyone who believes in it, and then he meets Jesus, he hits the ground and says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. 
surrender. Short or long. If it takes a little while or it takes a long while. And, and by the way, take that as a bit of encouragement. Not as an excuse, but take it as a bit of encouragement, okay? Don't give up hope when someone doesn't respond immediately. A handful of, handful of us in this room have had occurrences where we share the gospel with someone in that very moment. The light has come on. And real faith has been the response. They've trusted Jesus in that moment and crossed over from death to life, from darkness to light, from Satan's kingdom to God's. You know, some of us have seen that. One sharing of the gospel and they respond. But most of the time, for those people even, it's because someone has been praying for them and they've heard this a number of times in a number of different ways through a number of different people. Listen, don't lose hope. Keep sharing, keep talking, keep speaking it, keep trusting it, keep praying for it. Be part of that process. You'll be one of the many voices that God will use to bring, bring life there. Keep, keep speaking. I'm going to share this little bit of a, a quick epilogue, just a couple of minutes. It's something that's just kind of ironic to me, and that's why I call it the beautiful irony of Paul's chains. When Paul is speaking his hope for them, he says, here's what I want for you. I want you to have what I have in Christ. Now, now let me pause just for a second and, and take a detour from where I was going. I'm going to come back, okay? When you're sharing the gospel, and this just sort of struck me this morning as I was thinking through this text, what I want for people that, that don't know Christ, um, I got a neighbor that I'm trying to have conversations with and, and um, share the gospel with and, and we're making some progress, I think, and we're not there yet. I think, what do I really want for them? And I love this, this statement. I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Do you have a life, a testimony of life that somebody else would want? Now, Obviously, not all the problems. Paul says, not the chains, not that part. Not, not, the, not the scars, the beatings, not, not that part. But all, all the rest, I want you to have what I have. Man, if you can share the gospel with that keen of a sense of, listen, I want you to have the peace that I've got. I want you to have the joy that God has given me. I want you to have a sense of the presence of God that I enjoy. I, I want you, to, I want you to, to be able to experience God in prayer like I do. I want you to be able to be joyful and, and exult in Him and sing. I mean, I want, you to, I want you to have this. Peace and joy and love and the hope and the assurance. I, I want you to be able to navigate through life with Him at the helm like I have. I want you to have what I have. I, I think there are some things that hold us up from sharing the gospel. One of those is Sometimes we just lack the confidence of knowing what we're going to say and how we're going to say it. That's not hard to remedy. It's incumbent on each of us to remedy that. If you don't know what to say, then study so you know what to say, so you're able to give an answer. But I think there's a subtle hindrance behind the scenes that holds a lot of us up too. We're not enjoying him and walking with him and at peace with him. We're not finding our greatest joy in him, our pleasures satisfied in him. He's secondary. 
we love the stuff they love. We want the things they want. We enjoy the things that they enjoy. And so believe this, if you will, in case it's true, so you don't go to hell, perhaps. No, I want you to know him. I want you to have what I have. It's a powerful motivator for sharing the gospel. And then he says, except for these chains. It's interesting. I can imagine after this hearing, and this is the fifth one, and Agrippa leans over to Festus and says, this guy, this guy's going to continue this and now go before Nero? No. If he had not appealed to, to Caesar, we could just let him go. He'd be, he'd be free. And I, I can almost imagine him sort of sneering and scoffing, like, what a waste. This guy, what? He didn't have to go through any of this. He didn't have to endure any of this. He could be scot-free. He could go live his life, do whatever he wants. And they didn't understand that those chains weren't by them. They were for them. Everything he was doing was for their sake. And even if Paul could have walked away, that's not what he wanted to do. He was willingly staying in those chains because those were the very means by which he would do exactly what he wrote to the Philippians. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him by his death. So what they thought was meaningless, wasteful, unfathomable. Paul couldn't imagine anything else. This I will do so that you might know Christ, so that I can share Christ with you. And so I want you to bow your heads with me this morning, just everybody all over the room, just for a moment. There, there are a lot of differences among us all in this room. Ages, stages of life, backgrounds, Levels of understanding, all those things. There are so many differences, but there are only two categories that mark us, all of us. Just two. Those that belong to Christ right now and those who don't. And ultimately, those will be the only two eternal categories. Those who are His and those who are not. As the Old Testament rightly said, there will be a resurrection of the dead. Some will be a resurrection unto life The hope of heaven. Some will be a resurrection unto judgment. And eternal conscious torment. What's the difference between the two? Good and bad? Sincere and careless? No. Christ. The resurrected Christ. Have I believed in Jesus? Have I believed that I, as a sinner, who would one day stand before a holy God and give an account for those sins. Sins like committed against the eternal one, receiving the rightful punishment of eternal judgment. I didn't sin just against my neighbor or my friend or my spouse or, or my government or my country. I sinned against the Almighty. What defense will I offer? Christ took our sins in the flesh for us so that in suffering for us he could receive the wrath of God due our sins that was righteous and justifiable so that we could be forgiven. You can have that. God's offering that freely. I pray that today God has opened your eyes to see. And I pray that he's turned your heart so that you turn from whatever the old life looked like, whatever it was.
turn to the new life in God. Oh God, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want to enjoy you. I want to follow you. I want to be forgiven by you. And one day I want to find my place with you forever and ever. That's what I want. God says it's yours in Christ. It's been purchased and provided. It's done if you'll just receive it. So if that's you today, I pray that right now you would call upon the Lord and say, God, save me. I believe these things to be so. I believe Jesus loved me, gave himself for me. I believe he's risen from the dead, granting life to all who will trust in him. And I, I need that new life. I want that new life so desperately. And I believe that one day that new life is going to blossom into everlasting life. You can call on him and ask him to save you today. Christian, we just come out of the Thanksgiving season. Man, what a, what a motivation to worship, to be thankful to him who has been faithful to us, who has saved us. What a motivation for us to press on, persevere, keep sharing the good news to the resistant ones to the disinterested ones, the antagonistic ones. Keep loving them through to the end. Keep being like Paul was to his fellow man, his, his brothers in the flesh, the Jews. Oh, I want that you have what I have. And check up your own life. Do you have something that someone else would want? A joy worth sharing, a life worth imitating, a peace worth offering? A hope worth grasping? Do you have that? If you're not a believer yet, trust Him today. Father, I pray that the Scriptures would move us, move us to gratitude and worship, move us to courage and perseverance as believers, move us to confidence and hope because of Jesus. Father, for anyone listening, as I prayed before, pray that even now, by, by the work of your Holy Spirit, Cause the light to dawn where there was darkness before. And they see what they didn't see before. And they want what they didn't want before. Father, I pray that even now some would turn. They turn from their life and turn to God and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. Forgive me. Give me this new life. I want to trust and follow Jesus. I want to know him and love him and enjoy him. And I want to be with him forever. Father, save me. And Father, I pray that they will know a sweet assurance power of your Holy Spirit redeeming them. Father, your spirit would then bear witness with their spirit, as your word says, that they are now sons of God, that they belong to you, sons and daughters of the Most High, because they've trusted in you. Lord, I pray that by faith, Lord, you would make them new because of your grace. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus, our Savior and our King. It's in his name we pray, amen.